Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's uh, always a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's it's been exciting to, to be around uh, our property this week and see things changing very, very quickly. Um, and I'm looking forward to the day that instead of seeing things torn down, we start seeing things go up. Uh, so, so we'll pray that, that God sustains us uh, through the tearing down uh, right now. Um, as I was uh, preparing to, to preach this week uh, and, and looking uh, not only uh, just at our text from Genesis 15, uh, but really kind of pondering on the entire life of, of Abraham, as we're looking at uh, all of the promises that God makes to his people throughout the Old Testament, I, I kept coming back to this word and, and coming back to this theme that I have to admit I have a rather complicated relationship with. And, and if you grew up Lutheran or if you've been around the Lutheran church long enough, you very likely have the same complicated relationship with it. It's this theme of, of obedience, um, in fact, I, I think sometimes uh, amidst Lutheranism, uh, obedience uh, almost gets treated like a little bit of a dirty word. Uh, like I think some people would maybe prefer I use foul language in a sermon than talk too much about obedience. Uh, because uh, as, as all good Lutherans know, and, and as I believe is, is certainly one of the, the most beautiful things at the center of our faith, is the thing that we emphasize in what we believe and what we teach and what we believe the scriptures teach us is that Christianity and, and our faith is not primarily about obedience. It's not primarily about what we can do for God, but rather it is what God has done for us in Jesus. In fact, when I was ordained and, and installed as your pastor, I actually took some promises and, and made some, some vows to, to teach in accord with, with certain teachings. And one of the central ones is the Augsburg Confession, and, and I'm just going to read Article 4 for you, because, again, this is something I promise to teach by and, and something that is a part of, of our church and, and what we believe in and teach is, is central to our faith. It says, Furthermore, it is taught that we cannot obtain forgiveness of sin and righteousness before God through our merit, work, or satisfactions, read through obedience, but that we receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God out of grace for Christ's sake through faith. When we believe that Christ has suffered for us and that for his sake our sin is forgiven and righteousness and eternal life are given to us. It is Jesus and his work that is at the center of our faith. And there's perhaps no greater example of, of the life of faith than Abraham, right? He's held up throughout the scripture as this example of faith. In fact, we even read in chapter, in chapter 15, verse 6, what we just came across this morning. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And Abraham is the prime example that righteousness in the sight of God comes through faith. But as soon as we begin looking at the life of Abraham, and as soon as we begin holding him up as this example of, of faith, we also have to kind of acknowledge this reality that Abraham's entire life is an example of obedience. I mean, you look at when God called Abraham to, to pick up and leave the place where his family had settled. What does Abraham do? He does it. When Abraham calls, or when God calls Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, the, the very son that God himself had promised through him 
all of Abraham's offspring would be named. All of the promises that God made to Abraham would be realized through Isaac. And Abraham willingly does it. He's ready to offer his own son as a sacrifice until God at the very last moment intervenes and tells him to stop. Yes, Abraham is certainly a clear example of faith, but he is also an example of unquestioning obedience. And as we look at the life of Abraham, we're almost forced to ask ourselves, well, what then is this relationship between faith and obedience? If faith calls me to believe and and obedience calls me to do, then, then how do these two things relate to one another? But, but as we look at these promises that, that God makes to Abraham in chapter 15, I think we actually begin to start being clued in regarding how faith and obedience actually relate to one another. When, when God speaks to Abraham here in chapter 15, he's already called Abraham uh, to leave this land that he had been settled in, to go and, and settle in a new land. He's already promised Abraham that all of the earth is going to be blessed through his offspring. And God promises these these great offspring. And and when Abraham looks and and says, okay, I hear you making all these promises, God, but I don't have any children. God says, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. And it's then there that it says that Abraham believed the Lord and, and God counted it as righteousness. And then in in verse 7 here, the promises shift from from offspring to promises of land. It says in verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So so here God makes this promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you land, and in fact a lot of land. And this land that God promises to Abraham becomes known throughout the Old Testament as the promised land. And and then Abraham, in response to this, and and in response really to all of these promises that God has made, he says, how how am I supposed to know that I will possess it? What what Abraham's asking here is, is, God, let's make this official. Let's ratify this covenant. Let's let's seal the deal. Let's sign it. Let's make this legally binding. And the picture that follows is actually very consistent with other covenants that you see in the same, roughly the same region during roughly the same time period as Abraham. In fact, what you see in a lot of sort of political covenants that were drawn during that time is is a promise would be made between two nations or two parties, their kings would come together and they would make a covenant. And and to sort of seal the deal and make that covenant official, what they would do is they would offer a sacrifice, they would cut them in half, and they would sort of align them along the ground as you see Abraham doing. And and it's this way of sort of establishing a covenant. In fact, the idiom for making a covenant in the Old Testament is to cut a covenant. 
Right? It likely comes from this image, from cutting the sacrifices. And this is precisely what we see here. God makes a promise, a covenant with Abraham, and it is established legally through the offering of a sacrifice. And, and after they do this, we see this image where, where Abraham falls asleep, and, and God foretells the coming exile in, in Egypt, and then later the coming exodus from Egypt where God will, will judge Pharaoh and bring Israel out with great wealth. Right? All of that foretold here in verses 12 through 16. But then what follows is, is really kind of this odd image. I, I don't know if it struck you during the reading. But we see this strange image of a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch sort of come out of nowhere while, while Abraham is there asleep next to the sacrifices. Here's what it says. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. A lot of these ites. So we see the, the sun goes down, and, and as this happens, right again, keep in mind, Abraham is there asleep next to, sacri- next to like rotting carcasses. Abraham is there asleep. And this smoking fire pot and, and a flaming torch comes, and it passes through the sacrifices. Now, what does this mean? Now, what is this image all about? Now, most people agree There's some discrepancy in what sense it it represents God, but most people agree that the fire pot and the torch, they are representative of the presence of God. And and when the presence of God comes before Abraham, it passes through the sacrifices. Now, Now, this is a very important image in light of what I mentioned earlier about other covenants and political treaties made during the same time. Because often what would happen is when these covenants were made and these sacrifices were offered, the, the lesser or weaker of the two parties would walk through the sacrifices. It, it would walk through these pieces. So, so the weaker of the two nations would, would kind of walk through the aisle that has been made by these sacrifices. And essentially it was a way of saying this. If this covenant is broken, I will bear the burden. If this covenant is broken, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, I will bear the burden and let me and my nation be as these rotting carcasses on the ground. But you'll notice here that it's not the weaker party who passes through the sacrifices. Right? That would be Abraham. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. God comes and he passes through the sacrifices as a way of saying to Abraham, if this covenant is broken, I will bear the burden. You see here, God's promise to Abraham, they don't depend on Abraham. They don't depend on his obedience. They don't even depend on his faith. 
Abraham could turn from God at this moment, and what God is saying is, with or without you, I am going to make these promises true. I'm going to bring it about for the sake of the world. God's promises don't depend on Abraham. They depend upon God and his faithfulness. And that same thing is true for us. God's promises to you and to me, they don't depend on me. They don't depend on you. They don't depend on the strength of your obedience. They don't even depend on your faith. We receive those promises. We take part in them by faith. But they depend on God and His faithfulness to us. Because promises do not depend on us. They depend upon Him and Him alone. You know, I remember... uh, when I was just starting college. And, and I, uh, I was really actually starting to, to toy with this idea of, of going into to ministry. I, I had a conversation with, with my older brother. And, and I was talking to him and, and I, I was you know just kind of sharing kind of what had been sort of rattling around in my head and my heart and, and what I was thinking and, and feeling. And, and I remember saying to him something like, you know, Matt, I... I just feel like I've just pursued so many meaningless things. And I feel like I've, I've lived as if, as if God didn't matter. And I just don't want that anymore. And my brother, being wise beyond his years, I think that's why his hair started turning gray at like 18. I can't compliment him without making fun of him. We're brothers, that's how it works. But my brother, he, he said to me in, in response to that, you know, just hearing me, and, and he said, you know, Marcus, he's like, you know, if you, you want to go into ministry, that's, that's wonderful. That is a, a great thing. But you don't feel like this is something that you have to do to sort of make up for, for past mistakes. You know, I, I think about how often we maybe approach in that sense we approach it out of a place of guilt where we think to ourselves, you know, I have to do this because I messed up so badly before. Like we do, we say, God, I know I got it wrong. I know I messed up. I know I did what you have called me not to do. But I promise I'm going to get it right this time. I promise I'm going to make up for it. I promise that won't happen again. And I often feel like, like God, he, he hears that prayer and just kind of chuckles and says, oh, that, that's cute. <laughs> because God's promises do not depend on us. God's promises don't depend on, on our obedience. And, and we don't have to live our lives trying to, to prove the size of our faith to him. Because God walked through the sacrifices. And you think for Abraham, every single time he messed up, every single time he didn't act out of a place of faith, but doubt. And it does happen. Just read the rest of the story. He does do that. Every single time he messed up and doubted whether or not God's promises were still true for him, he could always point back to this moment and say, no, 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 God promised And he didn't just promise. He said he will bear the burden himself if those promises don't come true. God walked through the filth. 
and promise to bear that burden for me. We don't have to look at our lives and, and look at the moments we screw up and wonder, does God still love me? Does he still accept me? Because he himself has walked through the filth. When he knew that we couldn't hold up our end of the covenant, when we knew we couldn't hold up our end of the bargain, he came and he sent his son to walk through the filth, to walk naked to the trash heap to be crucified there. And on that cross, Jesus says, I will be the one to bear the burden. Well, when our, our, our wickedness, when our idolatry, when, when our just rampant disobedience was deserving of death, Jesus said, no, I'll bear the burden. Put that wrath on me. Do you think if God was willing to give his own son for you, that his love and his promises are so fragile that you somehow have to make up for every single wrong you've done. Absolutely not. God's love and his promises don't depend on you. They don't depend on your obedience. They don't depend even on your faith. God's love for you rests solely on Jesus. And it's not until we get that straight that we will ever begin to understand what real Christian obedience is. Is about. Now, one of my favorite uh, favorite things that I've ever read or come across regarding what a life of, of Christian obedience is, is about, it comes from, from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. And, and he says this, he says, the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God if there is one, or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. You know, I think of, of how often uh, I have fallen into one of those first two camps. And I think about how often we fall into one of those first two things that C.S. Lewis identifies. We think that God will love us because we've done good. And, and so we think, I need to rack up good works, and, and I need to, to express a lot of charity and give money to the poor, and I need to make sure I'm telling a certain number of people about Jesus every single week. And so that way God will know how much I love him. And that way God will know how faithful I am. And that is where I can be certain that I'm in. Or if we don't fall there, we, we fall into the other one and we just try to please men. We try to please other people seeking approval through, through the things that we've done through our intellect, through our accomplishments, through, through our wealth and our possessions or our clothing or our appearance. But the fact of the matter is neither of these have anything to do with Christian obedience because Christian obedience begins with knowing for certain that God loves us because of what he's done in Jesus. And it's from that that we learn what goodness is. And it is because of what God has done in Jesus, he promises that he has declared us good and he is going to complete that goodness one day. 
C.S. Lewis, he uses the image of, of this greenhouse, right? A greenhouse that, that shines brightly because the sun, it, it shines upon it. But I think Paul just says it best when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christian obedience is, is ultimately about just living as a reflection of what God has already done in you. That he has already declared his love for you. That he has already forgiven you. He has already set you free. He has already declared you righteous. And therefore we go and we live as a reflection of that. We live knowing certain of his love for us. So go. Go and, and simply live in and through Christ. Go and do what, what Martin Luther says in the small catechism and, and live and thank and praise God. Serve and obey God. Go live in thanksgiving for the promises that God has made for you. Go and live certain that in Jesus, God has promised his love for you. Amen? Amen. Amen.